Welcome back to the program. Every great city has its defining moment. Not always good, but certainly one that shapes its fortunes and reinforces its place in an urban pantheon. For New York, it was perhaps the 50s and the 90s. For Paris, the mid-1920s. For San Francisco, the 60s. For Hollywood, certainly the 1930s. And for Chicago, 1933. For the city of Detroit, the approximately 18 months from the fall of 1962 through the spring of 1964 marked perhaps the apogee and the beginning of the downward arc of this once great city. A city that came to personify the American experience in the second half of the 20th century. Detroit at the time was the epicenter of music, racial strife, labor success, and of a middle class that now seems a bygone dream. Now, capturing this moment, is Pulitzer Prize-winning author and journalist and Washington Post associate editor David Marinus. David has written books about Bill Clinton, Vince Lombardi, Roberto Clemente, about the Olympics, about Vietnam, and now Detroit. His book is Once in a Great City, and it is my pleasure to welcome David Marinus back to this program. David, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Always good to be with you. It's great to have you here. As we look at Detroit in this period, in many ways it is kind of the apotheosis of so much of 20th century values, things that mattered so much at the time. Cars, racial issues, the middle class, the music business, a time when politics mattered. It really represented so much that is so different today. You know, that's why I wanted to write this book. I, I was born in Detroit. Uh, in 1949, and uh, I was inspired actually by an M&M commercial for Chrysler. Uh, not, I didn't want to buy a car. I wanted to write about the city in which I was born. It, that commercial moved me so much. But, but what I want, I hope this book could do is show all of the the Detroit gave America, which is a huge amount, as you, as you listed. You know, not just cars and music, but also uh, the strength of the labor movement, of civil rights, and of bringing the working class into the middle class. That's an enormous contribution from one city. It was a contribution, but it was also Detroit as a place where so much of this that was going on in different amounts, in different ways, in different parts of the country, really came together in a kind of critical mass. Yes, absolutely. I think, I think there was a certain magic to Detroit during that period, even as you could see the shadows of what was to come. Uh, for so many reasons, all of those elements uh, intersected in various interesting ways, um, and it was um, just sort of a special time and place. It was also, and, and you define this in, in large measure by the way you talk about Motown and what was going on there and the tremendous amount of talent, but in so much of Detroit, whether it was in the auto industry or Motown, there was this kind of creative energy that is in many ways not dissimilar, to put it in a contemporary context, to what we see in Silicon Valley today. Absolutely. I think that the creative aspect of it, the freedom to invent, uh, is something that, that happens in certain times and places. You know, I, I, was, I was really fascinated by why that is, why... Certain cities or civilizations have these creative bursts. And in Detroit, I, I really focus that largely on, on music and, and Barry Gordy and, and Motown, uh, that absolutely marvelous collection of, of talent with little Stevie Wonder and Smokey Robinson and Marvin Gaye and Martha and the Vandellas and the Supremes and Temptations, on and on. Just, to, just incredible, this one city produced all of that music. So why did it happen? Well, part of it was the... Um, 
the, the, the great migration of African Americans from the South, uh, bringing their oral traditions and song and blues and jazz with them to Detroit. But that happened in Chicago and Cleveland and other places as well. A part of it was, of it was Barry Gordy's specific genius in, as an entrepreneur and finding talent. But there were two other factors that really fascinated me. One was that Detroit um, was this vast geographic city with a lot of single-family homes um, stretching for 28 miles across, and pe- working-class people with disposable income, and a great piano company, uh, Grinnell Brothers. Every musician I interviewed talked about the pianos in their homes. And the final factor, I think, uh, was the great public school music teachers in Detroit. Again, every musician I interviewed talked about their not just their high school music teacher, but their elementary school music teacher, and how much that meant to their development. What impact did the music creativity and all of this that you're talking about, how did that filter down into so many of these other areas? What was the nexus into the labor movement and civil rights and and even the auto industry? Well, um, there are connections in every one of those. Barry Gordy, the founder of Motown, who started it with an $800 loan from his uh, siblings and parents, um, really got his start on the assembly line, the Mercury uh, assembly line, and it was there that he, he first started writing songs and thinking about ways to create sort of an assembly line of music, in a sense. Um, then you have the Civil Rights Movement, which in Detroit in 1963, uh, the key figure bringing Martin Luther King to Detroit was Aretha Franklin's father, the preacher Reverend C.L. Franklin. And in a rally in Detroit in June of 1963 uh, attracted 150,000 people walking down the main thoroughfare Woodward Avenue uh, to Cobo Hall, where Dr. King delivered the uh, early iteration of his I Have a Dream speech in Detroit first. And he was walking arm-in-arm with the great United Auto Workers President Walter Ruther, um, and the whole thing was recorded by Barry Gordy of Motown. So you have all of these connections all the way along. The degree to which it was a company town and the degree to which all of these things were so deeply intertwined and interrelated is also one of the things that led to its problems and ultimately to its downfall. Talk about that. Well, definitely Detroit was essentially a one-company town, and it was the automotive industry. Um, It would rise and fall with that. It was uh, actually starting in the late 1950s that one could see the auto industry um, sort of starting to leave Detroit, both in terms of its factories and abandoning the city emotionally, so that by... 1963, the heart of my book, um, some sociologists at Wayne State University essentially predicted everything that was to happen in terms of the depopulation of this city, uh, saying that it would lose about a half million people per decade from then on. And I think that the industry was booming at that point. Uh, The 1962 Detroit Auto Show where I opened my book, was uh, introduced to 63 models that would sell more than any before that. And they were big cars. Uh, the industry had, had a very slight blip of interest in, in compact cars uh, in 1959 and 60, but by 63 they were building the big ones again and couldn't see uh, Japan on the horizon. And when did the, the arc start to move downward? What was the tipping point that began to put into effect the things that, as you say, were, were underlying even the success? 
Well, there were several factors involved here, and so they, you know, it was sort of a rippling effect. Um, in the 1950s, as I said, the auto industry was starting to move out of Detroit. Um, also, in the late 1950s, 59-60 period, there was massive um, construction of freeways in the city that, that had a double negative effect. They made it easier for people to leave the city and go to the suburbs. Um, but they also unsettled the traditional African-American communities in Detroit, Black Bottom and Paradise Valley, with the freeways running right through them and tearing them apart. And I think that also led to a, sort of a, a double negative effect. Um, so all of that was happening around the same time leading up to the 63 to 65 period. All of this before what people tend to think is a demarcation, which were the, the riots of 1967. Talk a little bit about the housing issues that faced Detroit, because they were interesting, and they were part of what, what led to the decline as well. Absolutely. Uh, that goes all the way back to World War II. You know, when Detroit was called the arsenal of democracy, all of the munitions that, that helped America win that war were built in Detroit. Um, but it, it also involved bringing in a lot of, of migrants, from, uh, people from the South, uh, the great migration of African Americans, and whites from Appalachia. And in the middle of that period, in 1943, there was a huge uh, uh, racial riot in Detroit, um, which marked sort of a, a period of racial tension that continued all the way through the 50s and 60s, so that um, Detroit uh, was very racist in terms of its housing policies. Efforts to, to pass an open housing law in 1963, in the heart of my book, was soundly defeated. There were there were uh, dozens of, of, of very vigilant uh, white neighborhood associations that opposed any efforts by even one African-American family to move into their neighborhoods. And, and that really, the racial tensions of Detroit were a central factor in, in all of the troubles to come. What impact or what influence did politics and politicians have? People like George Romney, Mitt Romney's father, who was the governor at the time, and Jerome Cavanaugh, who was the mayor. What influence and what impact did they have? Well, um, Jerome Cavanaugh, the mayor uh, in that period, he was elected in 1961. He was a, a, a progressive, liberal sort of acolyte of, of John F. Kennedy's, an Irish Catholic with a large family, and he had been elected um, predominantly because of the African-American vote uh, in reaction to the previous mayor and police department, which the, which the black community thought was, was heavily against them. And so Kavanaugh came in trying to improve race relations in the city. He brought in a uh, very progressive police chief, George Edwards, um, who had actually stepped down from the state Supreme Court to take that job, with the sole purpose of trying to improve race relations in the city. Um, Edwards had greeted Martin Luther King at the airport uh, during that walk to freedom in, in June of 63, essentially saying, you'll, you'll encounter no police dogs here. This was right after Birmingham and the, and the, uh, the uh, police riot against uh, civil rights demonstrators down there where they sicked dogs and, and fire hoses on the civil rights demonstrators. So all of that was an effort to, to improve things in Detroit. George Romney was also part of that. He was elected governor, uh, took over in, in early 63, and um, he was a very moderate to progressive on race relations. And, and in, the, in, in 63, that summer, 
um, he actually marched um, at a demonstration in support of open housing in some of the most segregated suburbs of Gross Point. There was also corruption, though, in various places that led to some of the decay. Well, there was, uh, you know, the mob was very active in Detroit. There was a, there was a large numbers racket going on. Um, there was some corruption in the police department itself, and, and all of that certainly was a factor. The, the corruption of, of it, within City Hall actually came later, um, much after this period. How much of the failures of Detroit really can be found in its success, in its, in its shining success in so many of these areas? How much of the, of the failures can we see inside those? Well, I think that's often true that you see the seeds of of destruction, uh, you know, in in the promise of a moment, uh, and that certainly was true of Detroit. The auto industry, as I said, was booming, and they couldn't see um, that their short term success would have long term uh, peril in terms of the types of cars they were building and in their movement away from the city of Detroit. I think if you talk to auto executives there today, they they express regret, remorse about allowing the city to, to decay in so many ways because of their, some of their decisions. Um, and in terms of the, the, the racial tensions of the city, um, that walk to freedom in, in June of 63 was the high point, but a, a month later there was a police shooting of a black prostitute um, in the back that was sort of a precursor to sadly things we see even you know today in terms of ferguson and so on so that success also perhaps blinded people to the racial tensions that were still there um and in almost every aspect that was true we mentioned the labor movement before and and the success of it in in many ways walter ruther was was a key figure in that and a great personality talk a little about him Walter Ruther, the president of the United Auto Workers, really at the foundation of that great union, along with his brothers Roy and Victor, um, started working in the plants uh, in the 1930s. And it, there's one moment, uh, it's not in my book because I didn't find out about it until a little later, but he, he said that, that uh, he was, when he was working in the plants, he was going to school and some manager at Ford came up to him and said, you could be a vice president here someday. <laughs> And Ruther said, little did he know what I had in store. <laughs> but Ruther um, was really a, quite a progressive uh, labor leader. He was not only interested in improving the, the uh, economic uh, situations for his workers and, and helping bringing the working class into the middle class, but he was also very progressive on race. And he was pushing first President Kennedy on, in the civil rights bills and then, and then very instrumental in helping President Johnson pass the the Civil Rights Acts and the Voting Rights Acts of 64 and 65. Um, and he took part in the Walk to Freedom in 63 and the March on Washington uh, later that same summer, um, really sort of ahead of his rank and file on, the, on those very important civil rights causes. From a personal perspective, talk a little about the nostalgia, and I don't know really any other word that, that's appropriate, in thinking about this time for you in writing about this time, because so much of what you write about so much of what we've been talking about is so different today. Cars don't matter in the same way. We know what the state of the labor movement is today. We know what the state of the middle class is. Certainly the music business doesn't exist in any form similar to what, what Barry Gordy took on. It, it is pretty remarkable that in such a relatively short time, 
so much has changed. Yeah, almost all of that, in a sense, is lost. You're absolutely right. Um, you know, Barry Gordy moved his industry to Los Angeles, and you're right, the whole industry is so different now from what it was then. Uh, the auto industry, cars um, to millennials aren't as important mm-hmm. and a central part of, of the culture as they were. Um, and uh, uh, in terms of labor, it's been you know, almost decimated in the, in the half century since then. Um, all of that has changed, and and yet there's there's one aspect of it all that that I've been in Detroit quite a bit in the last uh, few weeks, and one aspect of it is coming back, and that's a sense of freedom and possibility again. You know, as as down as Detroit has been, um, you go there now, and there's a, there's an energy that's probably not unlike what it was in those early '60s days, where Young people are coming to Detroit, and much like Motown did, they're sort of inventing new ideas and, and, and new, new prospects, uh, feeling that both because it's inexpensive to live there and also there's nothing to lose when you go there. Um, so, in, so much of what I write about sort of feels nostalgic, but there's also, in a very different way, a, a rebirth. Right. It's also hard not to think about it, as, as I mentioned earlier, in the context of thinking about Silicon Valley today and the creative energy that's there and the creativity that's there and wondering if if inherent in that aren't the kind of seeds in some ways that we saw in Detroit. Well, I think there are lessons to be learned from Detroit. If we had all the lessons, this would be a magical world. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I don't try to overstate that. But Basically, um, there were a series of smaller decisions that led to Detroit's dis- demise, but also some very deep structural problems, and a, and a mindset that really was geared more towards short-term gain than, than long-term stability. And I think that's always important to keep in mind wherever uh, we are. What were some of those things? What were some of those structural decisions that really were geared towards the short-term? Well, the auto industry definitely, mm-hmm. in terms of abandoning the city emotionally and and financially um, for short-term gain, um, and and then later sort of realizing that the heart of their their whole enterprise, the city from which the it was founded, was was you know in disarray and in despair. Um, I think that short-term gains in terms of urban renewal, which many African Americans came to call Negro removal. Um, you know, it was perhaps un, unwitting and well-intentioned, but it really had a profound negative effect on, on the communities in, 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 in Detroit. I think those are two important aspects of it. It's interesting the way the auto industry today uses Detroit as still cert- a certain kind of iconography related to cars. The story that you tell about, about seeing the Chrysler commercial is really uh, the definition of that. Yes, you see more and more of that, uh, sort of going back to the grittiness of Detroit to describe the industry. And that's what inspired my book. It was I was in New York City uh, in, on Super Bowl Sunday of 2011, ironically watching the Super Bowl, rooting for the Green Bay Packers. Uh, even though I was born in Detroit, I spent most of my childhood <laughs> in, in Wisconsin, and I'm a Packer guy. And my uh, book on Vince Lombardi had been turned into a Broadway play, so I was literally watching the game with the actors from, from the play. And at halftime, I looked up and saw a commercial with a freeway sign of Detroit. I started paying attention. 
and there came all of the sort of uh, iconic images of that city, the, the Diego Rivera mural, um, the Joe Louis fist, uh, Eminem driving through the streets with his hypnotic backbeat and getting out at the Fox Theater um, in a black gospel choir rising in song. All of that moved me tremendously. I, I actually choked up watching it, and that's when I decided that I had to write about it. So, and that was because, you know, I didn't want to buy a Chrysler, um, but I, but, um, but I did feel that sort of grittiness of Detroit and the, and the hope and promise of it and what was lost and what could be uh, recovered all in that simple commercial. It goes to the heart of what you alluded to before. The one thing that hasn't changed, the one thing that's there in Detroit today is this spirit of optimism. That's consistent. Well, I think that there were points where the optimism might have been missing uh, in the 1980s and and uh, and certain times even more recently. Uh, but there's definitely always a grit in Detroit, and now it, that that determination and grit is matched with an optimism where they they see the the potential of a true revitalization. Um, but as I say, you know, you can there there are very rich people investing in downtown Detroit. Um, you know, Dan Gilbert and Quicken Loans and and some others. Uh, you can see that that area popping, and then the Midtown area near Wayne State University and the Detroit Institute of Arts. Um, a lot of young people are flooding in, but there's still wide swaths of Detroit that are desolate. I went out a few weeks ago to the house where I lived when I was six years old on Dexter, and it was torn down uh, just recently. And about five out of the eight houses on that block were gone, and you can drive for miles like that uh, and see that. But but there is. Um, so there's a mix of, uh, of optimism and still a lot of work to be done. David Marinus, his book is Once in a Great City, a Detroit story. It's just out from Simon & Schuster. David, it is always a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you, Jeff. I always enjoy talking with you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 